Hello, and welcome to the 92nd episode of the Jewish Drinking Show. I'm your host, Rabbi Drew Kaplan. I'm very excited to welcome first-time guest of the show, Adam Montefiore. Thank you very much. Good to be here. Absolutely. Is it Montefiore? Is it Montefiore? How do you pronounce it? We say Montefiore. I know in America, some people say Montefiore. We say Montefiore. Okay. And of course, it's originally an Italian name. So that's, that's where it comes from. Yeah. It's a good thing I you know, asked for clarification. Yeah. Yes, for sure. For those less familiar with Adam Montefiore, he is a wine industry insider turned wine writer who has contributed to the advance of Israeli wines for 35 years. He is the wine writer for the Jerusalem Post. Previously, he worked many years for Israeli wineries and became arguably the most visual champion of Israeli wine in the wider world. He has been referred to as the ambassador of Israeli wines and the English voice of Israeli wines. He is also the author of The Wine Root of Israel, as well as Wines of Israel. So definitely an Israeli wine expert. So welcome. An Israeli wine guy. I mean, it's a great honor to be, to be invited on the show. Mm-hmm. And I just before we begin, I just want to say what an amazing uh, show or podcast. I don't really know what you call it. I found it by accident. Yeah. And now I'm a fan. And I'm listening stage by stage to all the back uh, uh, editions, episodes, and um, wow. Thank you. It's a great idea, much needed, and there's so much to learn and so much uh, fun to listen in. Thank you. I appreciate your approbations. It's it's wonderful to hear, especially for someone who's in the industry, like really actively engaged in it. So thank you. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, it's it's great. Okay, wonderful. So... um, all right, so we'll we'll just get right right into it. Like you are an Israeli wine expert, and uh, and you know a lot about Israeli wine history. So I'm very curious, at least the contemporary, you know, last couple of centuries, uh, what's been going on in Israel. And I, you know, I, I think for some people, a lot of people know that there's certainly nowadays there's a fair amount of kosher wine available that's coming out of Israel, but. I don't think a lot of people know early 20th and certainly not 19th century history, and you know the historical context for how. And certainly, A, what, what's even going on right now, but certainly how do we even get to where we are now? So how did, how did things get going in, in the you know, modern times of Israel? Well, if we start right at the beginning, mm-hmm. we start with a forebear of mine, Sir Moses Montefiore, mm-hmm. who is an English uh, philanthropist who visited Israel seven times. Wow. In 1839, he wrote that Jews should return to agriculture. And the religious Jews should earn a living by working in agriculture rather than living off handouts. We've heard of how did that before. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, he said they should plant vines and olive trees. And uh, it was something that was the first time Jews thought of agriculture for, for 2,000 years. Mm. I mean, it was the first time that someone flagged that up. Yeah. And, of course, Moses Montefiore um, he bought the first land for Jewish agriculture in 1855. Where? He built um, in uh, Jaffa, oh, Jaffa okay. near Tel Aviv. Then Jaffa was uh, there instead of Tel Aviv. Mm-hmm. It's today the Montefiore Quarter of Tel Aviv. Hmm. Um, he built the windmill, which mm. was a symbolic um, building, which was to say, Ein Kemach, Ein Torah, Ein Torah, Ein Kemach. You have to work for a living. Um, and it's now part of the, um, the skyline of modern Jerusalem, Western Jerusalem. Mm-hmm. And, of course, he built the, f- the first modern neighborhood of, of modern Western Jerusalem, which was Miskanot Shamni, the mm. first neighborhood outside the old city walls. 
So I'm proud that uh, Montefiore uh, played the part in a call to return to agriculture and plant vines. That's wonderful. The first three... Can, uh, yeah, sorry. Can I just, so what is your relationship to him? Um, he's, he's my uncle, five times removed. Hmm. Um, uh, I'm five generations afterwards. Uh, wow. I'm the first member of the family to, to make Aliyah oh, after wow. all these years. Yeah. And um, my two children are, are also in the, wine, in the wine trade. My two I have three children, oh, two wow. in Israel and two <laughs> of them in the wine trade. Wow. So it's quite nice. <laughs> That's wonderful. Okay. So this is, um, and for a little bit of a context for him. So you said he, he set up stuff going on in Yaffa and then also the, these, this first settlement beyond the old city's walls in Yerushalayim. Uh, did he did he set up a wine making stuff going on in Jerusalem or mostly just in, no, in Yaffa? No, he did. He didn't, in fact, plant any vineyards. Okay. Um, he um, encouraged mm. uh, people to go into uh, to work to to plant vines uh, to return to agriculture, and it was Rothschild later that uh, did the practical side that planted the vineyards. Mm -hmm. Baron Edmund Rothschild. So Moses Montefiore was more. Um, a prophet uh, foreseeing mm -hmm. a Zionist before his time, he's been referred to. Uh, and straight after he said these words, wineries started forming in 1840. Mm -hmm. uh, was uh, Gineo, uh, a winemaker from uh, Saloniki. Mm -hmm. uh, in 1848 was the Shaw family from the Ukraine. Mm -hmm. And in 1870 was the Tepperberg family from Austria. So these were the first three basic small Jewish old city wineries mm -hmm. so serving it, mainly Kiddush wine and sweet wine mm -hmm. for a religious population. So in the 1830s, was there much of a move already underway of Jews going into agriculture and working the land in Israel? Or was he really no, trying to jumpstart it? No, Jews uh, didn't work agriculture. They bought grapes from the Arabs mm. uh, who owned vineyards in the Hebron area which was the main grape-growing area. Mm -hmm. um, and they had very good relationships with the Arabs. Mm. They bought local grape varieties, which are coming back uh, now. We'll talk about them later, probably. Mm -hmm. um, uh, so they didn't plant vineyards. Um, they used what was existing. Mm -hmm. um, but they did make wine. And um, they did decide to... Uh, uh, that it was important, you know, wine was an important... I believe that Jews throughout uh, history in uh, the Holy Land, Eretz Kodesh, mm -hmm. they made wine. Mm -hmm. But it was a domestic affair. And we talk about these three that I mentioned because they lasted a long time. So, mm. so we know about them. But I think most Jewish homes um, made wine uh, so they could make Kiddush. So mm. it was a domestic industry. There was no rabbinical organization. There mm -hmm. were no labels. You made wine <laughs> in a small cask. Mm -hmm. So you bought, you bought wine from uh, a Yaakov. You knew he was a good Jew and you trusted him and he was probably a relation. Um, instead of uh, looking at the Kashrut certificate and knowing where you could <laughs> buy wine. Mm -hmm. So it was a very interesting time for, as a, you know, um, for a religious Jew. Um, there was no organized a uh, uh, system for wine. Mm. There was for meat. It was a different issue. But for wine, it became far later. I know the Shaw family uh, was founded in 1848. 
They are today Israel's oldest existing winery. Mm. They have wineries today called uh, Zion Winery and 1848 Winery. <laughs> and there, I hear from the folklore of the family, they used to send the young girls, uh, people um, with an empty glass bottle of wine. Uh, a family would probably only have one glass bottle, and they would send them to the winery to fill it up. And why the girls? Because the boys would be studying, the men would be studying, the women mm. would be at home. Mm. And then the girls would cover it up with a bit of uh, material on the walk back to the winery because the winery was in the Muslim quarter and they didn't want to inflame the Muslims wow. by uh, having alcohol and they didn't want anyone non-kosher to look at the wine and make it, make it, uh, make it trace. So, wow. so um, this is the folklore of the family. Uh, a family had one bottle, glass bottle, and if they didn't have a glass bottle, they used to go and buy a small cask and uh, buy, buy that and take it home. So uh, we know that from reading the sources um, that we have from that area, uh, era. And, it, you know, it's quite interesting to think how different things were in those days. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. What wine was referred to as sweet or sour. So sour was dry or probably semi-dry. Huh. And sweet, we know what that was. And most of the wine was sweet. So, <laughs> again, it's an insight into to wine at the time. Yeah. And what you, you had mentioned earlier, a lot of it, a lot of the use seems to have been for more for ritual purposes, Kiddish, Avdallah, rather than, right? Yeah, I think most of it was for ritual purposes. Mm -hmm. uh, wine was, wasn't considered something, you know, there's, there's an old saying that Jews didn't drink. Mm -hmm. um, and it's taken, I don't know how many years for us to get the Jew, a Jewish drinking podcast. <laughs> um, uh, so, uh, so it's about time. Uh, but um, Jews didn't drink. Uh, every, uh, wine was associated very much with religion. Mm. Uh, it was in small quantities. And it was considered not cool to get drunk, mm. uh, as you know. Yeah, very neat. Hey there, I wanted to see how you're enjoying the episode so far. If you have any feedback, comments, questions, anything, please let me know. And also, if you have topics, as well as uh, potential guests, including, who knows, maybe yourself, please let me know. Feel free to reach out to me at drew at jewishdrinking.com. Thank you, and now back into the show. The Shaw family, mm -hmm. um, still going today, eight generations afterwards, wow. uh, which is amazing, mm -hmm. uh, producing great wine. Mm -hmm. um, uh, but the first um, time uh, we got Jewish vineyards uh, was really when Baron Rothschild became involved. In the 1880s, when they planted vineyards all over, I mean, there was a Jewish vineyard before called Kerem Avraham, but mm -hmm. this was the first time that uh, Jewish vineyards became uh, an objective of uh, the Yeshuvim uh, all over the country. Uh, so before 1882, they were just getting the grapes that the Arabs had harvested, and then they made them they, into wine? Yeah, they got uh, the grapes from, the, from Hebron, mm -hmm. and they used them. Mm -hmm. um, some people say they bought grapes in the local market, in the shuk, mm -hmm. um, but um, there was no pretension to quality. It was just to make a wine that could be uh, religiously used. Mm. Um, and I believe in 1848, the first, for the first time, barrels of wine were sent to America for the first export to America, <laughs> which wouldn't have been uh, um, allowed today because of the kashrut. Um, 
you know, is trying to stop up a barrel and then sending it on a ship. You don't know what happens to it on the ship. Yeah. Um, uh, and so, um, but the, 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 the founding of a modern Israeli wine industry happened with Baron Edmund de Rothschild, mm-hmm. who was from the famous Rothschild family. He owned Chateau Lafitte, which is just about the most famous winery in the world. Wow. And he sent the top agronomists from France to, to Israel. Um, he sent a Bordeaux winemaker to make the first wine. <laughs> he built the two wineries with the largest, the two largest wineries in Israel with deep underground cellars at Rishon Sion and Zichor and Yaakov. Hmm. Um, but before that, in 88 and 89, 1888 and 1889 was the first time the growers, the farmers, had to struggle with the problems of the biblical agricultural laws. Oh, and they Shemitah. had to try, struggle to know what to do with Shemitah. Mm-hmm. Uh, they were very proud to observe the laws for the first time in, say, 2,000 years. I don't know how long. Ola Shemitah Kilea Kerem. But Shemitah was the problem. And, and, and we're in another Shemitah year right now. And we're in another Shemitah year right now. Yeah. So the big debate was what to do. So um, the more it, religious... I, I was going to say that was 19 Shemitah cycles ago. It was 18, because, 88, 89. Right. So was, yeah, yeah, so that was exactly thir- 19. Because uh, twenty, it would have been 20 cycles ago that they founded the winery, 140 years ago. Yeah. Yeah. I need a calculator to do things like that. You can do it in your head. Yeah. So yeah. 19, 19 Shemitah cycles ago for those yeah. uh, keeping score at home. Okay. And, and, it, and it nearly tore the whole, uh, uh, pro- the first Aliyah apart. There were some mm. people that insisted we're here after 2000 years, we can observe Shemitah. Uh, we don't want to not observe it. And Baron Edmund de Rothschild was more practical. He said, Look, I'm investing a lot of money in these uh, in these growers in the wine industry. Uh, we need to come up with a compromise because if we don't make wine one year, the, the whole enterprise will fall. Mm. And that's when they first came up with the compromise of the Chet and Mechira, um, like they do at Pesach with the uh, with the Chametz. So, um, so that was done. That, really, the this was the catalyst for the Heter Mechira. This was the catalyst for the Heter Mechira. Wow! It was the first time it was decided, and there was a storm. The you know the the Jewish world was in a storm about this, and funny enough, every Shemitah after that, everyone uh, took the Heter Mechira as read. It was all okay. There wasn't the great debate that there was in that first that first year. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was a fascinating debate between modern practica- uh, practical- uh, practicality and observing the law to the, uh, to the nth degree. Hmm. Because those that observed it thought, ah, oh, Rothschild will pay all the wages, he will pay all the salaries, um, <laughs> we'll be profitable, whatever happens. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he didn't like it, and he got some pretty senior rabbis to come round to his view. So hmm. this was the first Chet Mechira. Wow. And today at Shemitah, we normally have a Chet Mechira, or we have an Otsa Bedin. Um, and there's some wineries, for instance, the Zion winery that we talked about, mm-hmm. um, don't make wine during a Shemitah year. Hmm. So uh, some wineries, you know, uh, adhere to, uh, uh, to uh, the letter of the law. Hmm. Um, others 
make whatever um, whatever um, uh, deal they decide to make with Ritz Achetimichirah on Sabbath Din. And uh, they continue as normal. So <laughs> apart from that, they continue as normal. So um, that was a that was a, a fascinating time. <laughs> then Rothschild came and planted the vineyards, and Carmel, uh, the root of Carmel is caramel, was mm. the first was the first uh, caramel uh, God's vineyard. Yeah. Was the first the first uh, commercial winery, which was built in 1890. The first vineyards were from 1882, and um, and Carmel um, distinguished itself distinguished itself by being the first, eventually the first winery to make quality dry wines, mm. but not world class wines. I noticed in a previous podcast um, they forgot Carmel. About Carmel was way ahead uh, mm. ahead of all the other Californian wineries in mm. making dry wine. Um, and the other thing about Carmel is three prime, future prime ministers of Israel worked at Carmel, which really? is totally unique. Now, I've been in this business, I don't know how many years, and every time I give a talk or a tour, I mention the three prime ministers. And despite I've done this for so many years, every time I ask for people, give me three prime ministers that have worked for Carmel, <laughs> No one ever has got the right answer, ever. Mm. So I will tell you for free who <laughs> yes. the three are. Uh, one was David Ben-Gurion. Mm-hmm. Second was Levi Eshkol, who worked in the mm. vineyard surrounding Rishon mm-hmm. And the third, believe it or not, was Echod Olmert. Mm. So I don't know mm. many countries, around, many companies around the world that would have prime, prime, one prime minister, let alone three that worked yeah. in it's funny, his, his, the middle one, Eshko, I mean, that's his last name. <laughs> yeah, sure, sure. And uh, he, of course, was an agriculturist. Ben-Gurion, it was just a job between jobs. Mm. But what's interesting about Ben-Gurion is he worked in the winery. And uh, he caused a lot of trouble in the winery. People say he caused the first strike, led the first strike. Um, he uh, was very competitive. Mm-hmm. And there's a story goes that he bet his colleagues that he could stand on the grapes, tread the grapes longer than, longer than they could. And he lasted, he lasted three days nonstop. Oh, wow. Obviously with a break at night, I suppose. Uh-huh. And he won his bet, but the smell of wine fermenting <laughs> made him so nauseous, he couldn't drink wine for years afterwards. Wow. And it sounds like folklore, but it's in one of his books. So it's... <laughs> It must be true. <laughs> but the, the interesting thing about that, uh, Rabbi Drew, is that mm-hmm. he worked in the winery and he wasn't a religious Jew. Mm. And um, so uh, this brings me to another point. Now, today in a kosher winery, the workers all have to be Shomre Shabbat mm-hmm. and they have to be approved by a rabbi, by the rabbi of the, of the winery. Um, in those days, uh, you didn't have to be uh, Shomrei Shabbat. Mm-hmm. You could be religious. You could be Jewish, and they knew you were Jewish. And until the 1980s, it was it was lax. Hmm. Uh, people uh, who were Jewish could say, "Oh, I'll put on a kippah. I'll go into the winery and work." Mm-hmm. Uh, and it was it was okay. And I know this from Carmel, which was was the be all and end all of kashrut in wine and the biggest winery, 
Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it only started getting more competitive and stricter in 1983 with the founding of Shas, mm. the Sephardi party. And mm. suddenly, Kashrut started to become more competitive, started to have more uh, business potential, and everyone started getting stricter. But oh. before that, and, and this is very interesting because we discussed uh, earlier uh, with another post, if, if Moses Montefiore drank kosher wine or non-kosher wine, mm-hmm. uh, kosher wine or non-kosher wine uh, in the 19th century. Um, and here we can see that kashrut in those days was laxer in terms of the, the people working in the winery mm. until comparatively recently. So that's quite, a, quite an interesting historical point. Yeah, only within the last four decades. Wow. Exactly, which is, which is amazing. It's, yeah. uh, it's amazing. Hey there, I hope you're enjoying this episode so far. I want to break in again, and if you have ideas beyond the show, beyond the podcast, beyond this video content, if you have ideas for what Jewish drinking can bring you, whether it's, who knows, maybe it's Zoom sessions, maybe it's uh, events, maybe, who knows, swag, please let me know. I'm very curious to hear from you any ideas, things that we can do, things that I can bring you from Jewish drinking. So feel free to reach out to me at drew at jewishdrinking.com. I'm happy to bring that to you. All right, now back into the show. Rav Cook was a very important person because he he was a, a person that made it okay for the religious uh, Jew to work in agriculture in the secular Israel. So mm-hmm. he, in fact, bridged the gap and made it okay for for someone who, for a, a group of people who weren't particularly Zionist, to shed their their worries about whether um, a secular state was good for them or not, and to um, w- uh, work for the greater good. So it actually gave uh, an impetus for everyone to be able to work with agriculture mm. um, and um, and the religious community as well. So uh, he was a very important part in bringing religious Zionism into the uh, framework Hmm. and allowing uh, the growers who were religious to feel that they were doing it uh, for a good cause and Hmm. not promoting a country that was secular, which was, which many Haredim were, were, uh, were against. Hmm. So Rav Cook was a very important personality in, um, in smoothing over the, uh, the barriers that were between um, uh, some religious communities and the state of Israel. Mm-hmm. I didn't know if it had any effect on the Shemitah uh, issue. Um, I don't think it did, okay. but um, I, I, I researched and checked the rabbis that supported Shemitah, but I can't remember them. Mm-hmm. I supported the, um, uh, the uh, compromise, but uh, it was the first time the compromise was used, and from then on, it became, you know, the way of working together. Uh, um, there was always a solution. Was the mm. attitude. I hope you've been enjoying this conversation, this episode with Adam Montefiore. I have good news and I have bad news. The bad news is that this is the end of this episode. I know, terribly sad, but I have great news in that this conversation and topic continues into the next episode, which I hope you join us for. And here's a sneak peek into that episode, still featuring Adam Montefiore. First famous dry red wine in kosher wine came in 1976. 
So we've jumped forward here. That is a huge jump. <laughs> it was a huge jump. Before that, the wines were semi-dry or sweet. I hope you enjoy that sneak peek to next week's episode, still featuring Adam Montefiore, and I hope you come back for a more contemporary history of modern Israeli wines. Thank you so much, and l'chaim.